Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're uh, completing our short series, Fall on Your Knees, and we're talking about the birth narrative of Christ from Matthew. And as we do, I want to start with something. It, it was something that I thought of last time as I talked about who Jesus is. And it's a, a comparison because our, our society, our culture, has uh, a, uh, a, a series that maybe you started watching when I did in 19. 19- 77, Star Wars, right? In fact, we saw the Star Wars uh, just yesterday, the final one. I've been waiting 42 years. I think I've seen every one of them in the theater, which says a lot about my age, but we won't go there. Uh, but I, I, before we did it, before we watched this last one, you know, after 42 years, you forget a few details. So we decided to binge watch with, you know, Disney Plus now, you can do that, um, Although the eighth one you had to watch on Netflix for some reason. Uh, but uh, So we watched all of them, starting with the first one instead of starting with the fourth one like they came out. We started with the first one. And, and it was interesting in that first one, Anakin Skywalker, a little kid who becomes Darth Vader, the evil you know, guy that's uh, he's, he's fallen into the dark side of the force. Here, Anakin Skywalker, when they talk about him, he has a mother and no father they say. You kind of go, oh, interesting. Trying to make him a Christ type of figure. Of course, a Christ type of figure that's gone bad, obviously. (laughs) And so here's, here's this Anakin Skywalker, and he has no father. He's been born apparently by this woman and metachlorians. Metachlorians is some sort of life force. And so you have this dual Anakin who is a part human, part, you know, midichlorian. And I thought, wow, that's exactly like that one view of Christ, an Astorian view of Christ, where they said he's two people, not one. He's God, he's man, he's two, not one. And that's why uh, in the Council of Chalcedon, they came out and said, no, he's one person with two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And they came with that view. And I thought, well, this is a pantheistic view of Nestorian uh, saviorhood, if you will. This this, is this view of this this Christ-like figure who uh, would be the the way it would be written if, if, if you came up with all is God rather than a personal God. You have an impersonal God. I know it gets kind of deep, right? Here's where I'm going with that. Nobody, not J.J. Abrams, not Lucas, George Lucas, not John Williams who wrote the music, none of those died believing this story is true. It's a made-up story. And so the question is, is how do we know that the story we see by Matthew is not the same, a made-up story? Because there are those in our culture who would say it's a made-up story, right? And they would say this sounds just like that one. And, and you can make up a story like that. There's a difference because Matthew and all the disciples believed this story and were willing to give their lives for it. It means that you've got to at least consider and look at the facts and the details of it. And in fact, it goes to the resurrection. And there are those who, who have tried to dispel the resurrection. 
And C.S. Lewis would be one of those who was an atheist and, and looked at the details of the resurrection. It was because of the resurrection that brought him around to believing all about Christ. And so when we look at these birth narratives, we have to understand this is not just to be looked at in isolation, but in terms of the whole story, because Matthew doesn't tell just this story. He tells the end of the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so it's important for us to understand that. It's important for us to, to come to terms with that because Matthew says he is of God, of David, of Abraham, son of Abraham, son of David. He was virgin born. He is, and we kind of lose a little bit in translation with Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel. And we sing, he's Emmanuel. Sing his name Emmanuel. And we say, oh yeah, God with us. Now think about that. He's saying, Jesus is God. He's clearly saying Jesus is God. He is God with us, God incarnate. He is God. He is deity. Now I want you to think about the courage that Matthew had to write this opening. He starts off with a genealogy that you'd think he would clean up, but he doesn't. He includes good kings and bad kings under David. He includes sinners and righteous. He includes also Gentiles as well as Jews. Women, which was Unheard of in most genealogies, you would have men mentioned, but you wouldn't have women. You might have one. He has five. I mean, he's clearly wanting us to understand that of Jesus' heritage. He's clearly wanting us to know he was virgin born, and six times in eight verses, he makes that clear. He is God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, God with us. And then he goes to the Magi. And the interesting thing about that, the courage that he had as a Magi, he's writing, you remember, to a, probably a Jewish audience, most likely, because of the way he writes, because he doesn't explain some Jewish traditions, he just says them. He has wise men worshiping a person. In Jewish minds, in Jewish thought, they didn't even have the image of a person on their coins. The Romans forced it on them. If they had a, a, a typical Jewish coin, they would not have the image of a person. And all their, uh, if you look at any of their uh, facades on their buildings, they would have animals, they would have plants, and they would have uh, figures uh, like the, the, the Star of David, but they wouldn't have the image of a person because Scripture tells them not to do so because they don't want anything that competes and rivals God. And here Matthew, right out of the box, has a genealogy not cleaned up. Virgin born, calls him deity, and now says wise men worshipped him. Gosh, the courage of Matthew. I am blown away by his courage. We talk about go tell it on the mountain. He was telling it on the mountain. He's been telling it on the mountain for 2,000 years. And he gave his life for it. And I think, wow, I need to take notice. It challenges me. His courage challenges me. Let's look at the story. And I want to just read it. Listen, or you can follow along if you want. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come to worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest of the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so as we get into the details of this narrative, we need to understand some things in order to understand what was going on here. It says it's after Jesus was born. Now in Luke's gospel, he tells us what happened that day. But he's telling us, Matthew, what happened after. He says in the days of Herod the king, we know that Herod died in 4 B.C., so this would have been prior to 4 B.C. when Jesus was born. And most of us think, wait a minute, our calendar starts, you know, with Jesus' birth. Well, they're off by about four years. It says, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men. We know it's plural, so there were many of them. Usually what we, we think of is we think of three, right? I mean, after all, that's what all the pictures look like. Uh, you know, when you look at the... Uh, a photograph that was taken of the wise men. Right? That's what we think. That's not a photograph of the... That's just some three guys, you know, they're taking their picture taken, right? And, and you think, why do we have three? Well, because of the three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We say there's three. But we don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. There could have been 50 of them as far as we know. And they all just chipped in for the gifts. We don't know what they were. In fact, we don't know their names. Although if you go to Italy, Ravenna, Italy, you'll find in a, uh, uh, in a church there a picture like this with them bringing gifts. And they're kind of dressed in, you know, sixth uh, century clothing, not first century. They have names above them. If you'll see Balthazar, Melchior, Caspar, uh, we don't know their names. Uh, they just kind of came up with some, I'm guessing, because of an early play. Uh, they, they had to give them names so that they could do some. I, I don't know what, but I, I do know, we don't know how many of them they are. They weren't kings either. The, the Magi were advisors to kings. In fact, we see in, in Daniel chapter 2, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar calling the magicians and the sorcerers and the conjurers and he, and he was pulling them all together and Daniel's included in that group. And that word magicians is translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, magi. We see the word magi in, in the book of Acts of a guy who was an uh, a, uh, advisor to a Roman proconsul. So it's a broadly used term. 
of people who were advisors to kings. These were guys of great influence. I mean, they had the king's ear. They, they were considered wise. They, were con they had access to wealth. Uh, they were smart guys. They were people who were, were educated, well-educated. And so you have these guys that are showing up. The interesting thing is you think, well, they came from the east. So east would have been Babylon, Iraq, somewhere along that area where we'd have Iraq, Iran, those, those countries. Remember, Israel was exiled in Babylon. And they would have taken the scriptures with them. And so these wise men would have had the scriptures available to them. And I think that's important because you think, how did they know to come? In Numbers chapter 24, there's a prophecy, Balaam's prophecy. It's his fourth one. Uh, he was hired uh, to, uh, uh, by Balak to, uh, uh, to curse Israel. And four times he pays him to curse Israel and he blesses them instead. And he's kind of ticked because he's not getting his money's worth. But God's telling them, don't curse them. You better bless them. Uh, and still gets on to him for even going in the first place. But in his fourth prophecy in Numbers 24, 17, he says, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, Magi were also astrologers. They looked at the sky. They, looked at the, they knew the stars. And so they would have known, when uh, there's a new star over here. Wonder what that means. And somebody goes, hey, I was reading the Hebrew scriptures the other day. They either knew Hebrew or Greek, uh, one of the two, because it was translated into the Greek, Septuagint. Uh, they were, I was searching the scriptures, and I found this verse, and it says, a star will come out of Jacob. Scepter out of Israel. Jacob's Israel, that's, that's over there. It's to the west of us. And so they decided to follow through and go check it out. And I was thinking, man, here's a group of guys. Think about it. They're, they have a king that they're under. And they're willing to go worship another king? Somebody else's king? That could have put them in a pretty tight pickle. And yet here they are willing to study the scriptures and do something about what they study. How many times do we do that? Where we read the scriptures and we go, wow, I really want to apply this. And, and, and then we go actually do it. I mean, we get excited about it. But there's so many other times where we hear a message. We have a quiet time with the Lord early in the morning. And then somebody asks us at the end of the day, hey, what was your time with the Lord? What did you study? Um, uh, well, it was, uh, it was really good. Yeah, that's great, but what was it? I, I you know, can't remember. Can't even remember, much less apply it. And here's some guys who are studying the scriptures, and they travel 2,000 miles. They pull their resources together, and they buy these expensive gifts. And they're willing to check it out. And I am stirred by their obedience to God, their, their willingness to respond to what they've read. And then they went to talk to, they went to Jerusalem. They talked to King Herod. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. That's not just a light thing, by the way. When you go talk to a king, one of the biggest things they worry about are rival kings. In ancient history, and you see this even in, in uh, 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 the uh, first and second kings, first and second chronicles, a new king comes along of a new line. And guess what the first thing that person does? Wipes out the previous king's line. In fact, that's one of the things that David had promised Jonathan that he wouldn't do whenever he became king, that he would wipe out Jonathan's line. They got wiped out amazingly by, uh, except for Mephibosheth. 
And when he found out Mephibosheth was still alive, he brings him to his table and you kind of go, wow. That is unusual. That's rare to do. So here you go to the king of the land who has been declared king by the Roman Senate. And you say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? In other words, you're saying, who is the one who has the right to be king? Not you, sir, who are just uh, standing in place because you've been declared by the Roman Senate. Now, this guy had been king for 30 years over Israel. He would have been given that position by Rome. And uh, at the end of his life, which we know he was nearing the end of his life. He died in 4 BC, so Jesus was born in about 5, most likely BC. And um, he's near the end of his life. He became paranoid. I mean, paranoia of a high order. He was worried that someone was going to come along and take away his kingship because he was half Edomian and half Jewish, and so he was worried somebody was going to come in and just bump him out and have a legitimate person in place. He was so paranoid that he killed four of his sons because he thought they might want the throne. He killed his wife, Miriamne, who he loved. But he was paranoid that she was beginning to talk behind his back. He killed one of his his brother-in-law. And you look at that and you think, he killed all these people. There's no reason. I mean, there's a small wonder that he says, when Kirid the king heard this, he was troubled. Troubled is an understatement. This guy was a raging lunatic. And he was just furious. And it's no small reason why we see and all Jerusalem with him. We begin at this point to see the responses of the people that should have known better. Herod, the people, and the scribes and Pharisees. Herod responded with anger. He didn't want anyone else to rule over him. He didn't want anybody else to push him out of the way. And I think about, and when I first looked at it, I thought, do we do that? Absolutely do. Because we don't like somebody else telling us what to do. And God wants to tell us what to do. We submit to Jesus. He's telling us what to do. He's telling us how to live our lives. And we find in our culture especially that people are beginning to just push out the scripture seeing it as something that isn't legitimate anymore. They want to reinterpret it, redefine it. And I think, wow, we we do the same thing. We try to do it in, in heady sort of ways. But the reality is here were some guys submitting to the will of God, submitting to the scriptures, and Herod was going, I'm having none of it. Nobody's going to rule over me. And then you have all Jerusalem with them. What's, what was going on with them? Fear. And I thought, did we do that? Absolutely. We become afraid of our culture. He, they were afraid of their culture. They were afraid of their king. And what he might do to them. And we become afraid of our culture and what they might do to us if we believe in Jesus and if we go tell it on the mountain, if we speak it out, if we verbalize it, if we say, here's what God wants, we become afraid. And I'm so amazed by the courage of Matthew who, who decided, I'm speaking, I'm tailing it on the mountains. It's going to be 2,000 years and in in, in counting that, that we see his words. And then the chief priests and scribes. All the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be, bo- to be born. They told him, and I don't know if you noticed when I read theirs, I read it with almost a bored voice because I think that's what they did they were apathetic 
They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, you know how far away Bethlehem is from Jerusalem? Five miles. Five miles. You can go down there and back and even and, and, and do it without going the typical 20 miles that a person would travel in a day in ancient times. It'd be a quick trip. It'd be a day trip. They didn't even make the day trip. And they knew the details. They knew the stuff. I think, how many of us know the stuff? We know who Jesus is. And I, at first, my, my thought was, when I was first going through this, I was thinking, the reason uh, we don't respond to him is we don't really know who Jesus is. That was kind of going to be my point for this morning, and I realized, no, that's not true. Herod knew who Jesus was, born king of the Jews. What do you want to do? Kill him. All Jerusalem knew who Jesus was. What do they want to do? They were afraid, scared to death to go check it out. The chief priests and the scribes, did they know who he was? They knew where he was supposed to be born. And this guy was born right where they said he was going to be born. And here are these people showing up saying, hey, we've we seen a star and it's prophesied. We want to go check it out. They don't even check it out. They don't go the five miles. And these guys, these Gentile uh, uh, possible sorcerers or magicians or whatever they came from, whatever their background was, they wanted to go check it out. And they were willing to do it. And I'm just blown away by that. And I'm thinking, we know. How many of us worship? How many of us worship? How many of us adore him, King of kings and Lord of lords? I think in, uh, when I was taught early on, uh, just a, a typical or a good way to pray is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, the ACTS plan, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, adore God, confess my sins, Thank God for what he's done for me. And then ask for the things that I want to ask. And the things that I ask are your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I realize I, so many times I do the cat's plan instead. And I leave adoration off. Or I don't spend very long with it because I don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do that. We struggle with it. I, almost a, uh, in fact, in first hour, I was saying, how do you adore God? And I was kind of going through some illustrations and, and saying, you know, you want to talk about who he is. God, you are the God of gods. You're the Lord of lords. There's no one like you. No one that's your equal. You're a defender. You're a shield. And we thank you for, oops, stop there, kick back to adoration. We jump to thanksgiving, we jump to supplication, and we can't seem to stay in the adoration mode. We don't know how to do it well. Pray through the Psalms. Take time to pray in the Psalms. Just turn to a Psalm that, that, talks, that begins to adore God, and you'll realize you're, you're saying things you don't normally say. You'll, you'll pray in a way that you don't normally pray because you're praying who God is and not what he has done yeah, we want to pray that. That's part of the, our prayer process. But we want, to, we want to adore him. We see Herod summoning the wise men. And he says that I too may come and worship him. He talked like a worshiper. And I think, do I just talk like a worshiper? Or am I a worshiper? Do I just sound like a worshiper? Can I say the right things and can carry the melodies or whatever it is and sound like a worshiper? Am I really a worshiper? There's things that, that, that if we were worshipers, it would change some of our Christmas season stuff. 
We find ourselves during the Christmas season doing a lot of different things and, 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 and yet not necessarily the worship things. We'll, 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 I mean, the fun things, great family traditions, and I love all of those. But I would say add to those the spiritual element of worship. That's what the wise men did. Add worship. And they did it corporately. They were together. They, 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 they were together together. The, the wise men, the three, the 50, whatever it was, all their entourage that went with them, along with their camels. I figure they weren't worshiping. But you have this group of people worshiping the Savior. I think, well, what can I do? Simple stuff. On a Sunday morning, whenever we're at Susan's parents' house, simple thing. I love to hear her dad read Luke 2. He just reads it. And he just gets emotional every time. And that's a special tradition that he does, and it gets us focused on Christ. It's a simple thing. Maybe praying together before you open gifts, thanking God or talking to him. Maybe taking some time to just sing together. It's one of the reasons I love our our Christmas Eve service. It's just a special time as a family. You just bring your family, bring the kids, and we just spend some time worshiping our Lord together. It's a a tradition that, that you begin to do and you just begin to focus upon who he is and you make that part of what you do. That we take time to worship him. We see them doing that. They come to the house, and you think, what house? I thought it was at the manger scene. If you have the wise men at your manger scene, you've got them in the wrong place. And probably most of you have them there, right? You have these, little, these wise men with gifts. I would say move them around. You know, if you're on the mantle, kind of move them at the other end of the mantle or, or maybe around the room. Uh, we don't know how when they actually showed up. I know that the... Uh, Orthodox Church in, in uh, uh, the, the Eastern Roman Empire, so it'd be uh, places uh, like Russia and other places, they celebrate uh, January 6th because they say that's when the wise men showed up, and I think that's too soon. Because if you look at the purification that Luke talks about and, and the eight days for, uh, for circumcision, then 33 days for purification, you've got about like 41 days. And they gave doves and not a lamb, so they didn't have the gold yet. So I know it was at least 41 days before the wise men showed up. And I know it was at least between that and about two years because Herod said he ascertained from the wise men about when it happened, and I'm sure he bumped it up. If it was one year old, he wanted to make sure, and so he went to two. So I'm guessing it's between that 41 days and maybe shortly after that. They weren't in the manger anymore. They were in a house. And they didn't see an infant anymore. They saw, uh, which was brephos, the Greek word brephos. They saw a pydon, which is a little child. So he might have been a toddler when they showed up. And they fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped first and then they gave gifts. They worshipped first and then they brought these incredible gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Very valuable gifts. The gold focused on the kingship of Christ. And maybe that wasn't their intent. I don't know what their intent was, but you look at gold and it was the the medal of kings. 
You look at incense and it was, it was the substance of priests. Begins to focus on the kingship and the priesthood of Jesus. And then his death because of myrrh that was used as an embalming ointment. And so it focuses not only here but on Jesus' coming. His second advent, his second coming. Which is crucial to the first. And then they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. You know, this week I was, as I was thinking on these things, uh, and I was doing uh, the daily Devo that uh, Shane and Shane does. If you haven't done that, it's kind of neat. Uh, I've enjoyed it as a, as a change of pace. And they said this on, uh, I think it was Thursday, said, God with us. God is with us. We've all read this verse or heard this verse almost every Christmas for most of our lives. But have you ever stopped, taken a step back, and considered what this actually means? Hidden somewhere in the shadowy corners of your mind, there's an accusation about God that's just waiting for life to get hard so that it can rear its ugly head. It's lying in wait, ready to pounce with the ancient arrow that confirms what the enemy wants us to believe about God. See, he doesn't care about you. He's just a distant, cold, and unfeeling God who could care less about your petty problems or your ordinary life. But the incarnation, in all of its wonder, stands in front of that fiery arrow like a shield over our hearts, and that ridiculous lie disintegrates into ash before the glory of his face. With every breath the God-man drew into his lungs and every word spoken from his sinless lips, Jesus unveiled the true emotions and nearness of God. There is nothing that unlocks the human soul and leads to wholehearted worship, affection, and obedience like meditating on Emmanuel, God with us. It's absolutely insane that Jesus left his throne where he was worshiped day and night and became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's worship him. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that Jesus is so worthy of our worship that Jesus demonstrated your love towards us, sinful people, that Christ came to die for us, to pay our way so that salvation could be given freely to us who believe. Lord, I pray that you would help us this Christmas season to respond not as Herod, not as in anger, not thinking who has a right to rule me, not responding in fear, wondering how our culture is going to respond to us, not responding as the chief priests and scribes who they knew it all. They were well educated in the scriptures and they seemed apathetic. Help us to care. Help us to not let our fears drive us. Help us to, to, uh, to submit to you and bow our knee before you and worship you like the Magi. We adore you, Lord. We love you. We worship you. You're the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, 
You have no equal. You have no rival. You have no one even close. You're the God of creation. You're the God of eternity. You're the I am. You are timeless outside of time. You're our rock. You're our shield. You're our defender, our protector. You're our love. You're our friend. We're your children. You're our father. You're our Lord. You're the Alpha and the Omega. We worship you, Lord. You're the one who is is virgin-born, Jesus. You're the one who is fully God and fully man of the line of David, royalty, of the line of kings, of the line of Abraham. You're the blessing of Abraham. The world will be blessed through you. You're that blessing. You're that forever ruler that David was promised that would forever rule from his throne. We worship you. Our hearts go out to you. We we bow our hearts to you. We love you and we worship you. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.